Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, JJ Peterson. Hi, JJ. Hi, Don. How are you? I am fantastic today. How are you? We are going to talk about one of your favorite things today. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Disney. Yes. I was at Disneyland with my wife in California before mm-hmm. you worked here. When mm-hmm. you're just an embryo in the story brand's <laughs> eye, whatever that goes. Yeah. And uh, you found out I was there in Texas. You said, hey, you want me to run over? Betsy and I were actually pulling out of the parking lot yeah. at the time. But you you had a season pass to yeah. Disney and would go all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I had one pretty much for about 20 years. <laughs> uh, when I, I started when I was in college, because at the time it was a cheap way to do entertainment. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I just kind of always stuck around. I had one the entire the main, time. Like the Magic Kingdom Park, or would you both. go to all of them? Well, yeah. What was what's the them. other one? California, California Adventure. California Adventure. And, you, and so you did them me. both? Because <laughs> 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 yeah. I find that, like, if I'm ever speaking in Orlando, something I'll yeah. run over to the park and I'll walk through it. In about yeah. 45 minutes, I'm kind of done. Yeah. I mean that, but I'm an adult. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you loved just, it. It's not about being an adult. Well, some maybe I don't know. I do love it. <laughs> I mean, I got a little. <sighs> I mean, I don't. Sometimes I confess things on here that I really regret later because people come up to Let's me and talk do it to me about anyway. it. Okay, <laughs> I. Um, you collect pins. I collect Disney pins. Disney pins are kind of a thing, and where you buy a set of pins and then you actually can exchange them with other people. But typically, what you do is you exchange. Is that them like with something castmates. on the dark side of Craigslist? You guys no, do no, that? No, or no, 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 no. It's wide out in the open. Everybody does it. You can see people walking around in these badges, and you go up to a cast member and you can pick off of their lanyards. You're goofy for my Cinderella? Yeah, yeah, and you can collect certain types, and you're specifically looking for hidden Mickeys on the pins because you cannot What's buy. What's a hidden Mickey? Shut your face right legal? now because I can't believe you're saying this to me. Hidden Mickey is where there is an image that looks like the head of Mickey Mouse that is hidden somewhere in the park, typically, but they're on pins. It's like that little... And you eat you know, the pin, ears. you go to a club late okay, at night, they now play I know loud you're saying music, this to make me mad. They, now, now I know you're doing room. this to make me mad. <laughs> and it's working. And I'm not a fan. But you can exchange the pins with the Disney cast members because they only have hidden Mickey ones. And so, ah. yes. So that is like – and also here's where the, my crossover of obsessions really worked is now they have Starbucks in Disneyland and California Adventure. And I got Starbucks mugs from Disneyland and California Adventure specifically. And the coffee tastes better out of those mugs. Um, it's more happy. Can you collect all the pins? Is there a winner? No, no, no. You can collect sets. So there's different sets you can get. Yeah. Like so you can get like the villain set, or you can get the villains in blue, or you can get the princess sets, or you can there's all these different kinds. There's like the Muppets. I collected the Muppets set. They're all hidden Mickey Muppets. So yeah. Well, that incredible force that caused you <laughs> to go down this uh-huh. spiral of collecting pins—that well, that is one—is created by business geniuses <laughs> yes. that we're going to interview today, and yes. we're going to find out how he did it. We've yeah. got a great interview, and all seriousness. Yes, I'm a Disney fan. The main reason is, you know, we grew up poor. Yeah, mom would take us to Disney. We lived in Texas. So we drive to Florida. I think we did it two or three times. She'd take us to Disney, and it was like you are kidding. This is what the rich people do <laughs> and my my mother would she would go to garage sales for months before we drove to florida and went to disney yeah. and she would find disney stuff she wouldn't let us see it she would hide it and she would put it in her suitcase 
and then we would go to Disney, and we would come back from Disney, and then she would pull those things out of oh, her. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's, that's so pretty cool. smart. Yeah, that's I mean, really, it's really smart. smart. I'm lying when I make fun of you know yeah. Disney. And all that. <laughs> it, it's an amazing thing. What they've created is unbelievable. I'm a big fan of Walt Disney. We watched all the documentaries, read the book, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was really great to have Lee Cockrell on the podcast because Lee ran all the Disney parks in Florida for years and was just extremely successful doing it. He had a cast of, you know, they call it a cast. It's not yeah. team members or whatever. Yeah, yeah. A cast of 40,000, yeah. what do they call them, JJ? The cast members. Cast members, yeah. yeah. So 40,000 cast you, members. So not if you're just like wearing the costume or something, but if yeah. you're working in the store, are you working on a ride, you're called a cast member. That's actually really great. Yeah. And, you know, this whole system, and I expected to talk to Lee. You know, he's, he's an executive. Yeah. And, and I expected, you know, we'd be talking about algorithms and numbers and all that stuff. It, not surprisingly, except it was counterintuitive to me. Yeah. <laughs> he talked about people the whole time. Yeah. He's like, this is a people game. You got to love people. You got to care about people. You got to listen to people. You have to actually father people yeah. in this role. And it's a terrific interview. I know it's going to be one of your favorites yeah. because you're such a fan. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, a magical guy running yeah. a magical kingdom. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, JJ, this one is for you. Yay. This interview dedicated to JJ Peterson, my interview <laughs> with Lee Cockrell. <laughs> Lee, thanks for coming on. Ah, good to be with you. I flew into Orlando maybe two weeks ago, and I was speaking to a bunch of financial advisors. And I got a um, an Uber from the airport to the hotel, and we went right through Disney World, you know, right through all those exits that go to all the parks. The Uber driver said, yeah, I've actually been to Disney a million times. My mother is about to end her 45-year career with Disney. Yeah. And uh, I knew that I was going to be interviewing you. I was reading your book. And so I said, tell me about her experience. And she said, oh, it was great. And I said, 45 years, 45 years. And she would say it was a life well spent. And he said it was amazing that she really felt like the place was family, even with thousands of employees. And I thought, man, if that's not an endorsement, a behind-the-scenes, talk-behind-the-guys-back endorsement, that would be it. So great job with, uh, with my Uber driver's mother. Yeah, well, we've got a lot of people who <laughs> have been there 40 years, 45 years. That's good to hear. Listen, you've written a bunch of books, Creating Magic, uh, The Customer Rules, Time Management Magic. I want to talk to you about your latest book, Career Magic, and it's part memoir, part biography, but you've done a great job of sprinkling in basic career advice. I mean, little tips on being honest, having integrity, being willing to have the difficult conversations, staying calm under pressure. All this kind of stuff, it's all in here. It's a fantastic read if somebody doesn't want to read a plain, boring business book and actually <laughs> wants to read somebody's narrative and get some business advice out of it. It's really great. But here, you tell me if I'm wrong. As I'm reading this book, it feels to me like you're saying a career, a successful career as a leader heading toward executive, is all about people. I mean, there's just a ton of you got to understand people, you've got to understand yourself if you want to succeed. Am I accurate? Well, yeah, I think nobody gets in trouble in their career very often for having not knowing what they're doing. It's uh, what they get in trouble with is their behavior and how they treat people and how they speak to people and even ignore them and be preoccupied and all the things we don't train or develop them. And those are the things that I think really get a leader in trouble. I think uh, I had a lot of people, uh, the business I was in, it knew more technically than I did, but I really got to where I understood the 
value of focusing on people because at the end of the day, as I put in one of my other books, your people are your brand. And if they wake up in the morning excited to come to work and you've trained them well and you've selected well, you're just going to have a great business. And uh, too many people, I think, out there want to be bosses instead of teachers. And when they start to think about teaching people and helping them get ahead, you get ahead too. And that's uh, that worked well for me for 41 years and uh, <laughs> I recommend it. Why don't we learn that in business school? There's some people stuff in business school, but you know, it feels like it should be half the curriculum. Well, it should be, and I'm concerned that it's not. Not only that, time management, how to organize yourself, how to yeah. think about where to spend your time and where not to spend your time and who not to hang out with and all those kinds of things. People waste so much time anymore, and I think uh, these softer skills are not being taught. Uh, I think they slowly are coming around, but not fast enough where people – really need to understand how deeply important it is to have people trust you. Well, you say it on page 143. I'm reading from your book. You say, if people don't like you or trust you, then you are not going to get very far, and you will never quite know why, because they may never tell you. Nobody tells you if you're a jerk, do they? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> uh, Nobody tells probably not me. a good idea, especially if you're the boss. <laughs> You know, we're talking to 50,000, a lot of executives right now, a lot of business leaders. How do they stop and do an assessment right now on whether or not they are not performing well in terms of their people skills? Is there a question they can ask themselves? Well, I think like you just said, you get sometimes you can't see that yourself. Uh, we get so caught up and everybody uh, thinks we're great and tells us we're great when we're really not. And uh, I think reflection is really difficult for a lot of people to, to really stop and say, okay, what am I doing? That's okay. What am I not doing? Uh, what should I be doing? Do I involve my people? Do they trust me? Are they able to come and tell me the hardest uh, information and I can accept it properly? I just think there's a bunch of people in the world, and that, I, that's, a, I think, something I have. I, I have that ability to understand what I'm not doing well yeah. and uh, try to surround myself by people who can do that well. But on the people side, I had to work on that, too, because I was very insecure. I grew up in a kind of a dysfunctional family. I didn't have a college degree. And so when you're uh, insecure, you often are a little mean or a little hard or insecurity causes you to try to be in charge and tell everybody what to do and control everything. I had to get over that. I think that happens to a lot of business leaders that they're kind of insecure. They uh, are trying to put on a good face. Yeah, but a lot of business leaders, they don't get over it. I mean, you know, we all know <laughs> those people. So what helped you get over it? Because you described two different personalities. One doesn't often become the other. It's very clear when you're, you're working for a jerk boss or there's somebody that you know is kind of a jerk. It's very clear it's coming out of insecurities. Yeah. And they can't be vulnerable. They can't learn. They can't say things like they have insecurities. And yet you were that guy and you became somebody different. How in the world did that happen? Well, I was being very uh, successful in my career. And I was getting the bonuses and the cars and stock options and all that stuff. And everybody was praising me on my performance. But I went to visit one of my managers once out in El Paso, Texas at the Marriott. And uh, he had been transported to the hospital that he had gotten so much anxiety from me coming. And we'd never even met each other before. Wow. And when he came back that night, we had dinner and we talked about it. And he told me that. He said, your reputation gets here long before you do, Lee. And they say, Lee will always find things wrong. And that really struck me. And that was kind of the day I started rethinking who I was. And I even thought if my mother and grandmother heard that, they'd probably kick me upside the wall. So uh, <laughs> uh, I knew better. But you know what? When you yeah. hang out with 
people that misbehave, you kind of, if you hang out in the wrong environment, you become like that eventually if you're not careful. And, yeah. I just had a conversation with one of my staff guys this morning. We were talking about another leader, a different leader. And this leader has a lot of power. And somebody on his team did something really stupid and uh, was disloyal. And this leader went after him. And what we talked about was, hey, this big, powerful leader has a tank, and this little, small guy who screwed up has a water pistol, and he thinks they both have tanks. But what it looks like from the outside is the tank is attacking the water pistol, and he's looking like the villain, and he doesn't know it. Here's my question. First of all, everybody listening to this podcast probably has more power than the average person, but not everybody realizes they have more power. It sounds like you know, you going out and visiting this manager at, at the hotel out there was a point where you realized all of a sudden I'm a powerful person, which you weren't if you grew up in a dysfunctional environment and you came up from <laughs> nothing. Was there a point where you realized, okay, I, I actually have to step into this and own the fact that I can crush people without even knowing I'm doing it? Yeah, I, I got to where I knew that I'm so organized and disciplined that that alone intimidates people that uh, I kind of never forget. And it's supposed to be ready at five o'clock Friday, it better be. And I was always that kind of person. But I uh, I really did step back and rethink why I was behaving that way. And, uh, and slowly but surely start reading more about leaders, going to classes, trying to learn how to be uh, more open and, and to trust people. That was my problem. I didn't trust anybody because I wow. kind of had a whole life of not trusting anybody. And when you don't trust people you uh you want to control when you're a control person you misbehave and she was uh, i mean it, it happened in my marriage i mean my wife and i are doing great now but in my early days when i was immature and young i wanted to control everything i want everything my way and uh that's just a personality flaw that i got probably growing up and uh, my mother was married five times i was adopted twice and got my name cockerel when i was 16 and then i dropped out of college and went in the army so i was already pretty insecure from not having a college degree and so i finally got over it as my successes as i had more success my confidence grew and when my confidence grew i started backing off and i started slowly but surely uh trusting other people putting the right people around me and i said my nickname used to be doberman now it's cocker spaniel so uh, <laughs> i've come a long way yeah, I tell people I can bite, but I don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating, Lee. I mean, success makes some people arrogant, and uh, it makes some people humble. And I, I think there's a limit to how far you can get if it makes you arrogant. At some point, just from a literary perspective, you begin to play the role of a villain if it takes you toward arrogance. And uh, if it makes you humble, you end up playing the role of guide and helping other heroes win the day. You talk about the fact that you didn't grow up in uh, the normal, traditional, super healthy home. And yet you yeah. say in your book that part of leadership is owning up to the fact that you're going to act like, not be, but act like a parent. You say on page 139 of your book, a leader's job is to produce more leaders. A parent's job is to produce children whom can become great parents, citizens, and leaders as well. You paint a connection between those two. How did the guy who didn't have strong parents understand that he not only has to parent his own kids, he's got to parent everybody who's working for him? And the reason I say that is there's pushback on this. I would have been one of the guys five years ago who would have said, it is not my job to parent my team. That's the family's job. My job is to be a boss. And I've come full circle on that. And I do, I'm not saying the corporation should make up for dysfunctional families. The family is the family. 
But at the same time, if we don't realize people are coming to us with wounds and insecurities, and the more we own that, the better our environment is going to be, our culture is going to be, our people are going to be happy, we're going to be happy, and we're going to be more productive. How did you figure out that you needed to act like a dad? Well, I, I think I always uh, underestimated the influence I had on people, and one day it kind of struck me. Mm. I think too many people underestimate the influence they have on everybody from strangers to their family when they get home from a stressful day at work. That kind of became an eye-opener for me, and uh, I think that was one of the ways that I really started to rethink who I was. And You know, I grew up in Oklahoma in the 40s and 50s, and a lot of discrimination there, a lot of racism, a lot of uh, bad behavior. And my wife and I had a conversation before our son was born, and we said, we're going to make sure he never hears this in our house. We're going to behave. We're going to be good role models. And I have a son who's 48 now. He doesn't have a discriminatory bone in his body. Then he married a French lady, and I tell people I had to quit telling French jokes after that. <laughs> and now I got three fabulous grandchildren. They're 21, 18, and uh, 16, and they, they don't see color. They don't care if you're gay. They don't care if you're Muslim. They don't care what you are. All they care is who are you. And oh, yeah. that's because my wife and I stopped that in our family. I mean, we stopped it. And uh, somebody's got to step in and stop it sometimes, and in a company, too. You've got to put a stop to this inappropriate behavior and sexism and talking down to people and telling inappropriate jokes and uh, all those kinds of things. It just can't happen. I said, you know, you can't fix America, but you can fix your company and you can fix your family. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to deal with Congress on that. So um, <laughs> Congress could learn a lesson or two from you on that, by the way. Well, role modeling is everything. If you behave, people around you will behave. And I think that's kids learn from watching, not from listening. I heard Howard Hendricks say this once, that you're really only going to be as strong as the leader. The leader is going to be probably the limit for where every character in this organization is going. I, I don't, you know, I think there are anomalies for that, but I think it's a basic truth. It sounds like what you're saying. Well, I believe that the, a lot of the great people will leave if they don't have the right yeah, leadership. Great people can find a new job every day. They don't have to worry. It's the average people that stay. And frankly, and when I deal with companies and work with companies, I work with a lot of them on trying to get their culture right. I always tell them, is your boss want this to happen? CEO, the president, because if he doesn't, you don't need to waste your money on me because it ain't going to happen. Yeah. We say it follows the law of gravity, starts at the top. So. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Lee Cockrell in just a moment. Well, if you're listening to this episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast, you are too late. You can't get in. And what I'm talking about is the very first ever Story Brand Guide Certification Program. What happens is about 3,000 businesses come through Story Brand every year, and each of them come out with this clear message. They're completely excited. They want to make new websites. They want to make email marketing campaigns. They want to do all this stuff. And previously, we had to send them off to folks we didn't know. What we wanted to do then was take a group of guides and certify them to help each of these businesses create marketing collateral that works. Essentially, these are marketing coaches. If you are good at marketing and you want to take people who have gone through the StoryBrand framework and coach them to execute a marketing plan that works, we have a four-day guide certification program coming up again in May. Because we filled up the one in April, we created another one, and we are going to certify 40 or 50 more story brand guides. If you want to be a marketing coach, a marketing consultant, if you are an existing coach and want to increase your deliverables, if you want to start a new business as a marketing coach, or if you're with a large company and you want to certify people within that company to become certified story brand guides, go to storybrand.com slash 
guide. That's storybrand.com slash guide. The one in April filled up. The one in May will also fill up. I don't know when we'll do another one. So if you want to be a StoryBrand guide, go now and register. StoryBrand.com slash guide. On page 116, you actually get to uh, some real practical wisdom, and, and we can all kind of learn from this. When it comes to sort of that parenting idea, delivering bad news is part of the process, and every parent has to do it, every boss has to do it. Uh, and you talk about a transformation you experienced. You said uh, on page 116, in those days, I would beat around the bush and tell the person at the end of an hour of conversation that I had to let him or her go. I can't imagine how long that hour would be for the person you were firing. But I also probably blamed it on someone else, which isn't the trait of a great leader. After that, I learned to tell them quickly when we were together that they were terminated and then spend the next hour telling them why so they wouldn't repeat their mistakes and behaviors in their next position. You understand that life is not about building a business. It's about building people. And, the, and of course, sometimes you have to let people go because the people aren't right in their position. But I thought this was really interesting that in every situation, a lot of us who are building businesses, especially these sub $5 million businesses that we're trying to scale up, everything is about profitability, getting it done, putting the right people in the right place. You can fall into the temptation of seeing people as a cog in a wheel rather than a person. Yeah. And it seems like you really understand the counterintuitive idea of building this thing is all about people. And even when we let somebody go, we're going to let them go in such a way that we build them up and help them understand where they need to get stronger. Um, I just found it fascinating. Yeah, if I had great people too, and they just couldn't do the job anymore because we'd raised the expectation or took higher performance or they had an illness or something that happened in their life, they couldn't perform where we needed them to. I often even gave them six months to find a job. I said, your new job is to find a job and I'll help you. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll pay for your airfare. You go for the interviews, but you're going to January 12th is your last day. And so go get a job while you got one. Now, if that's as long as they weren't stealing or doing something inappropriate. Sure, yeah. We call those people at Disney good people, but they just don't fit anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got to move on. And it's hard. It's the hardest thing I had to do in my whole career is deal with those kind of things. Well, moving from, I want to shift gears here in the interview. Uh, you talk a lot about people in this book, how to deal with people and the stuff you learn about dealing with people. But you also talk about dealing with yourself. And you talk about uh, you know a little bit of time management. You talk about knowing what you stand for. Uh, you talk about being a good communicator. I want to start with knowing what you stand for. You two say, know now what you stand for and what you won't stand for. You literally just have to write it down and say, you have to know what you stand for. What would you do today if someone offered you drugs at a party? What would you do if you had a chance to take a little money from the register in your job and knew the others weren't doing it? What would you do if your boss came to you and told you to inflate the inventory this month to make the profit look better? On and on, you've got these questions, specifically for <laughs> Disney, and I cannot imagine how many people every day who work at Disney get this question. What would you do if your fellow employees asked you to use your Disney Pass to help them get some of their friends or family into the parks? That has to happen every single day uh, over oh, at Disney. But you talk about integrity. Why is integrity so important, and how did you discover why it was so important? Well, I think if you don't have the integrity, nobody's ever going to trust you. And if people don't trust you, you can't get anything. The marriage won't work. Your kids won't trust you. Your employees won't trust you. And you'll get about 50% out of them. 
they get just enough to get their paycheck, but not enough to, you know, the difference between giving me 50% and 150% is probably how much they trust me and how much I look after them and train them and develop yeah. them and all those kinds of things. And my father-in-law was an admiral in the Navy, and he was very unhappy with one of the officers that let a ship be boarded by North Korea. And I mm. said, what should he have done? And he said he should have fought to the death. I said, what? I said, when did you learn that? He said, when I took the oath to the Constitution to defend my country, I knew I could die for my country. And I, I wonder about how many business people, there's a lot of bad behavior going on out there, and uh, I don't want to go down and die one day. And people saying, boy, what an honorary guy that was. He was a, took advantage of everybody, and blah, blah, blah. You know, the stuff that goes yeah. on, it's just not worth it to me. That's interesting. I mean, you know, here's a guy, we're talking to a guy who, you know, ran one of the world's largest companies and did a great job doing it. And you're literally saying it's not worth the money to not have integrity. And I think a lot of people would say, well, that that's a great way to not grow your company. But you're living proof that it's the opposite, that it does grow the company yeah. or that it can. Well, if you get your people committed, which means they'll go all the way for you, then you're going to make a lot more money. You're going to have a lot more success, you're going to have lower turnover, lower theft. You know, they always say your people will not be committed to you unless they're 100% sure you're committed to them. Okay, well, I, I want you to talk about you've got a passion for time management. And I want you to give us some tips on managing our time. I mean, you know, you can't accomplish what you did in life unless you know how to use your time. And anymore, life is not about money to me. My career is not about money. It's about time. Give me some tips. It's basically the thought of, you know, take a few minutes every morning. Number one, think about yesterday, what you didn't do as well as you should have, so you don't do that again. And then think about the responsibilities you have every morning. People have 10 times more responsibility than they can really quote. They just don't think about it deep enough that these somebody's counting on you to take care of these things. And uh, so I, I'm very uh, defined on how I spend my time. I Even today, I have three things I focus on since I've retired. I focus, number one, on my health and taking care of myself. And hmm. It's like one and two, my family, because my wife said, take care of yourself, Lee, so you can take care of us. Yeah. And I'm very healthy. I weigh the same as I did 60 years ago. I work out every day. I have strength training twice a week. And uh, number two, my family, we do things together. We spend time together. We work together and we're still married. And uh, my business. And if I get those three things, then I'll go off or watch Kim Kardashian or whatever. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to waste my time until I get the three or four most important things in my life done every wow. day. Wow, man, mm-hmm. that's right there. That's gold. I mean, that's just gold. That's really good. Well, at Disney, when I was at Disney, I focused on three things. None of it was technical. I focused on making sure we were hiring the right people. I was involved in all those systems, that we were promoting the right people into management, that we were training, testing, and enforcing the training at Disney, and that I was trying to be a good role model for the culture, that we treat people right, because everybody's watching me, and if I do it, they'll do it, and it goes all the way down. And that's the three things I focus 99% of my time on. I didn't get involved in food and beverage and engineering, maintenance and merchandise and security. I had experts doing that, yeah. and that's where I could use my authority to make things happen. So I always say, think about where you can use your position and authority to really make the right things happen, and go spend your time there. I ask all these questions because we have these business leaders and there's a why behind everything I wanted to talk to you about today. You know, we believe here at StoryBrand that business is good, that business is a force for good or an overwhelming force for good. There's a, a kind of narrative underpinning the country that says corporations are bad and they're greedy and all this kind of stuff. And I hate hearing it because we deal with about 3,000 
corporations every year come through StoryBrand. I've yet to meet a bad guy trying to take over the world. I've yet to meet the villain, right? Yeah. And I find it a shame. And when I'm you know, in an Uber and I'm riding through Orlando and the guy driving me, his mother spent 45 years in a corporation and had her life changed and gets to retire and spend her final quarter of life reflecting on a joy-filled experience because of a giant corporation <laughs> Where are those narratives being told? And why do you think that business is good? And why did you devote your life to it? Well, I can tell you, I think it's often who you work for, you know, and we know there are a lot of bad behaving businesses out there. And then there's a lot of great ones. I worked at Hilton. They were great. I got treated right. I worked at Marriott. Marriott family was incredible. I mean, Mm -hmm. I learned so much in the 17 years. I worked at Disney and people don't leave. Turnover is low. People love In fact, people are living on the edge. They'd rather come to work and stay in their homes some days (laughs) because of their family situation. The sun shines at Disney. And I think the other problem is a lot of the people complain, about 80% of them, 70% of them, they got into something they're not passionate about. They don't like what they're doing. They got stuck. I always tell people, be careful you get stuck. You stay in a job too long. Now you got a house, you got a mortgage, and you got kids. Now you're stuck. You can't get in. You can't move. And uh, my wife and I just did apartments our whole life until we knew that I was loving what I was doing. And then we finally got into a house. And But I tell people, take risk when you're young. Don't stay in a job you don't love. And that's why they complain. I would say 99% of people out there, I shouldn't say it, but I guess 70% of people hate their job. And the number one reason people say they hate their job is they don't feel appreciated. Yeah. And I think that works both ways, the boss and the employee. They don't feel appreciated. So you got to get in the right company. And you if you learn early when you're 23, 24, 25, it's the wrong one, move, change. Don't stick there for 40 or 50 years and be miserable oh. because that'll that's what happens. And I'm sure you know these people too. They just don't like what they're doing. They don't like the work. They're not inspired by it. They don't think they're making a difference in the world. Work is good. I mean, we families changed dramatically working for Disney from the one who started cleaning bathrooms today. Uh, you know, George Calagritas, the president. He started as a busboy. He's now the president wow. of Disney. My son started in the parking lot 25 years ago. And now he's the vice president of the Magic Kingdom. That's amazing. Opportunities, the other thing, I think is why a lot of people get stuck and get unhappy. Because at Disney, Marriott, if you were good and you worked hard and did your job, you had a lot of opportunity to move up. And that's what people want. And a lot of people get stuck in these jobs because they don't have the technical skills. They don't have the management skills. And they don't work on those. And the years fly by, let me tell you. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're 40 and then you're 60. And uh, you get stuck. Well, Lee, I so appreciate your time. The book is called Career Magic. And you know, just to reiterate, Lee talks in this book about how just so much of this is about people. And you being a good person, knowing what you stand for, acting like a parent instead of just a boss, be a great communicator. We didn't even get to that. You got a great section on being a great communicator. Uh, learning to deliver even the bad news. Managing your time. All for a great cause. Because, uh, you know, as leaders, the environment that we create is the life that other people live. Of course, it's in their own hands. It's their responsibility. But they are sharing that agency with us as leaders and putting trust in us. And so I'm grateful for people like you who've uh, gone before us. You've done it extremely well. And you've taken the time to write down Uh, a little map for us to follow so that we can do the same. Lee, it's incredibly generous of you, and I'm grateful for your time today. 
Thank you. I might add one thing. When yeah. we think about parents, don't misunderstand that word because parents do the hard things. Yeah. My mother, we didn't care if we were happy every day. She cared if we were going to be successful. And that's what a leader's job is too. And so I had a lot of times when I didn't think she loved me when she was tough. <laughs> so yeah, you and me both. it all worked out in the end. So parent can mean a couple of things, tough and love, those two things. So good. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you very much for having me on and uh, good luck to you. All right. We're grateful for you, Lee. Thank you so much. If you're looking for some practical ways to begin implementing some of the things that Lee Cockrell talked about in his interview, you can download a worksheet at buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. That's buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. We're going to give you a few questions to answer that will help you begin applying this today. So go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. We have a special segment. We've never done this before, but we're recording this right before the Masters. I mean, the Masters is literally coming up. You might not listen to this till during the Masters or after the Masters, but the Masters Golf Tournament is the only tournament I ever actually stop and watch, and I watch it for two reasons. One is just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to watch that course, watch those players on that course. The iconic scenes of the winner coming up on that 18th green on Sunday is a beautiful moment. The second reason I watch it is because it's about time to start weed and feeding the lawn, and that course inspires me to do it. But apart from that, the Masters is just an incredible business. They have a brand that is beautiful. There's a lot of golf tournaments out there. They do a lot of things. They don't uh, let the TV sponsors show too many commercials while you're watching the Masters, so you have a different feel about the Masters while you're watching it. Of course, they have the best players. It's the first major tournament of the season. It's one of four, but it's the only one that doesn't move. It's always back at Augusta. They have protected this brand partially with scarcity, hard to get in, hard to play there, hard to be a member, hard to get a ticket. That's scarcity. But also with this sort of opened-armed enthusiasm and hospitality, the sandwiches when you go in person are inexpensive. The beer is inexpensive. They have a vibe about them that says, look, we are authoritative. We are competent at putting on a tournament, uh, but we are also like you. We also just love golf and we love people. They have accomplished something beautiful with their brand that I think many of us listening to this podcast would like to accomplish with ours. Well, this year we actually got a short interview with Ryan Moore. Ryan Moore finished 12th or 13th, I think is his highest ever at the Masters. He's won the Par 3 tournament that happens on Wednesday. He's played it eight years in a row. And we just had a short conversation with Ryan going into the week. Imagine it's Thursday and you're about to fly to Augusta to start Masters week. And Ryan took some time to talk with us. What a great guy great golfer. And here's a little bit uh, from Ryan about not just the Masters, but being a professional golfer. A short segment we just wanted to tack on to this episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast for those of you who not only like golf and the Masters, but like excellence in branding. Ryan Moore, thanks for taking time. Yeah, no problem. Hey, where are, we, where are you at? Where are we talking to you at? Uh, I'm at home in, uh, in Las Vegas. And I'm talking to you a few days before you leave, I would imagine, for Augusta to play the Masters. For Is this your eighth time? Uh, I believe so, yeah. That sounds, that sounds about right. 
I'm bad at keeping track of that stuff, but that sounds right. You know, more people are watching this than any other tournament. I mean, you guys have to know that. Is there a difference in your head and your mental space as you get ready? Yes, but not because of those reasons. I don't necessarily treat it differently. Every tournament I prepare for and I, and I work on things and I get myself ready to play any and every tournament I play in. I mean, being one of our four majors, uh, being the first one of the year, you know, this is the unofficial, like, start of golf season for a lot of people. Is like, you know, wait for Masters to be over, and then you kind of get going again. And uh, there's just there's a lot of things that go into it. Uh, but it's not necessarily because more people are watching or anything like that. It's just there's so much history to it. It's, it's the same golf course every year where all, all three of our other majors change venues every single year. So there's yeah. just this great feel to just coming back and, and it's, you know what the golf course is going to be like and there's just all those things kind of put together that make it so great walk me through eight years ago or so when you first played it there has to be a difference there's certainly a difference even in the way your brain works from one year to eight years later what's the difference between your mindset then and your mindset now well i mean the first time i played it i played as an amateur when i was still in college i actually played twice as an amateur because i had won some of the, there's a few events if you win as an amateur you you get to go play the you Masters, won the NCAA championship amazing. yeah you you won it I all I did I did win that yeah and I won a couple of uh, USGA events and those are the ones that uh, kind of qualify you to to go yeah. play the Masters and so yeah a lot has changed since that first time uh, going out there I don't think the first time I, I wasn't necessarily obviously as an amateur not thinking I could win but I felt like I could make the cut I felt like I could be there on the weekend which I did. Uh, the second awesome. time I played as an amateur, I actually thought I could win the golf tournament. I ended up finishing 13th. That's incredible. Yeah, that was uh, that was some that was some good golf. I finally beat that a couple of years ago, and I finished 12th. So I haven't really haven't necessarily <laughs> played better. Uh, haven't necessarily played better since. Well, walk me through your routine preparing for a tournament. I mean, what how have you learned to either calm yourself or prepare yourself? I mean, I literally mean like you make sure you're getting the right sleep. Is your nutrition perfect? What do you get? What do you do to get ready for these high pressure moments? Uh, I wish my nutrition was perfect. Uh, that'd be that'd be great. For me, it's a matter of uh, just getting my game, my swing, you know, where I want it to be and where I want it to feel. And that's, you know, golf. There's there's so many factors to to playing a round of golf. It's not just hitting the ball. It's not just putting. It's not just chipping. It's all these little things that you have to do, as well as the mental side of it. So. You know, the week before is a lot of mental prep in a lot of ways of just kind of getting things where I want it to be and where, where I feel comfortable. Maybe that's messing with equipment a little bit because didn't, I didn't like how I hit my three-wood or I hit my lob wedge the week before. So it's like, okay, let's go mess with this and tweak it and get it where I'm comfortable and feel more confident in it. You know, getting in the gym and working out. I have a great trainer here in Vegas that, I mean, has really helped me over the last i started working with him last june and it's made an incredible difference just feeling better feeling more consistent every week on the road so Mm. getting in with him and going to see him five days this week and and making sure my body feels right it's just it's like a little a checklist almost of just getting every little thing in line so that when you show up to the tournament you don't have any surprises basically you you feel comfortable where your swing's at you feel you like your putting and where it's at you like your your short game and chipping and you know if you did something poorly the week before it's putting more time into that so you can feel more confident in those it's just constantly evaluating where you're at um and adjusting i think is what makes you a great tournament golfer well you won the ncaa individual championship and then you started rising in the pro ranks 
with those accomplishments, there must have been enormous demands on your time. I don't just mean like from sponsors and from stuff that's really worth your time. I mean from stuff that is a drain. How did you figure out? I would imagine there are a lot of really talented golfers that we don't know about who have not been able to rise up because they're people pleasers or they can't say no or they can't organize their time or they can't structure their private life. Did you intuitively know how to do that or did you have help figuring that out? Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've had just some great people around me. Uh, I made the decision early on to not really go with any big agency or anything like that. Um, you know, my dad is a longtime uh, real estate broker, commercial real estate, and so he understood contracts and negotiations and stuff like that. And so I had him and my brother, really, my older brother, Jeremy, handling a lot of the business side of things early on it was just people i could trust that i know were going to make the right decisions for me not necessarily for themselves which is a huge relief uh, being young and, and turning pro and making money and doing all that stuff having people that i knew i could trust that i didn't have to be worrying about that side of right. things uh, was was huge early on but uh as far as being a people pleaser and, and all that stuff i mean you definitely could get to get sucked in, I'm, a, I'm about the most introverted person on the planet. So <laughs> that helps, um, right? Well, that helps. It, honestly, it really does. I'm not. I'm not one of those people that needs to go be best friends with everybody and needs to be, you know, buddy buddy with every guy on tour. Like I'm. Uh, yeah, you're not I'm heading to, to the. You're not heading to the party after. You're going home. No, no, I'm there to, to work. Yeah, you know, I'm there to do what I need to do to get better that day, and then then I leave, and and I'm fine. And I've I've always kind of been that way, and. Like I said, unfortunately, I've had you know great family and great support around me. A few really close friends um, that you know help keep me grounded. And now, you know, fortunate to have an amazing wife and a couple great kids. I've been always very, very picky about the people I let around me. I guess yeah. I, I would say, which has helped a lot. You know, over the years, just to keep stuff simple and not get too overwhelmed with all the things that can overwhelm you at times. Tell me about how you go about beating somebody who you just know is better than you. I mean, you know, you know they're sharper <laughs> right now, but you got to get out there every tournament and go, I got to take some of these guys down. And some tournaments you do, some tournaments you don't. But, you know, there's a lot of companies that are listening to this, heads of companies. They're $5 million companies. There's a $10 million competition or a $100 million competition. And they could easily fall into thinking, well, I'm just a $5 million guy instead of continuing to pursue mm -hmm. and grow. How do you keep going? I can get better. I can't get better and stop listening to the demons in your head. For me, it's just figure out what you do and why you are good and commit a hundred percent to that. And I can look around at <clears throat> the Dustin Johnson's, the Roy McIlroy's, the Jason days that all hit it 40 yards farther than I do with a driver. And I can look at them and be like, Oh man, I just wish I could do that. But there's a lot of different factors to shooting a, a round of golf. That is only one very small part of it. Right. Um, I can have a better short game than them. I can I can be a better putter. I can be more accurate with my irons. I can do all of these things that bridge the gap. And, you know, where that one thing seems like it could be everything, there's there's still so many factors to how, you know, how you can kind of put together, you know, your game. And, you know, like last year at the, the Tour Championship at the end of the year, I got into a playoff with Rory McIlroy, who was, was one of the top two yeah. or three players on the planet and, and has been for the last five years. And, we couldn't have more different games uh, in the end, but, you know, throughout 72 holes, we ended up tied and, uh, you know, going to a playoff, and, and I was head-to-head -head with him and ended up, he beat me, I think, on the fifth 
playoff hole. I had, you know, a couple chances I could have won in there. But, fifth. Uh, you guys went five yeah, holes. I think wow. it was five. It was four or five. You know, by the fourth or fifth hole, what's going through your head? Are you are you routine enough or that you can just block that stuff out and go, no, it's just golf. I mean, I'm going to try my best. I'm prepared for this. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to empty my – you know, I interviewed Ben Crane not very long ago. Mm-hmm. And he said the yeah. goal is in that tense moment when you're trying to sink that putt or whatever, you got a 15-foot putt, the goal is to think about nothing, that there's nothing in your brain, that your body literally is just going to take over from the work that you've done to get it trained. Can you do that walking up to the fifth green in a playoff with Rory McIlroy? I mean, yeah, it's possible. I mean, you got to think of, at that point, obviously I had this, I had played well to get there. You know, I, I, that was a, it was a tournament where I played well. Yeah, I shot you're 66. feeling good. Yeah, I shot 66, 64 over the weekend. Whew. And honestly, if you told me starting the day I'd shoot 64 on Sunday and not win that tournament, I would have been very, very shocked. Yeah. But both Rory and I, who were playing together already in that round, um, we both shot 64 and then ended up kind of catching I remember watching that. Ahead. I remember watching that. And there were a few times I saw him move his ball with his left foot. I don't, I don't want to, I don't, we'll yeah. talk about it later. But. <laughs> Man, you should have called him. Come on. Um, I might get in trouble for even saying that. So we're going to get a call. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to be there Wednesday watching the uh, par three tournament. I, you won that thing in uh, what year was that? 2014? Did you win that par three tournament at the Masters? Yeah, that was a few years back. So it was probably yeah, 13 or 14 sounds, sounds about right. And there's a tradition that if you win it, you know, there's some sort of like a spooky thing. If you win the par three, you can't win the tournament or something like that. Right? Were you worried about right. winning it? Did you go, oh, man. No, I was fine. You get a really cool trophy, and hey, I've won something at Augusta. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's something no one can take away from me the rest of my life. I have a big trophy that says winner on it from the Masters. So, um, you know. You all could, those all those little things, you know, add up. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, man, it's been a delight talking to you. We'll be rooting for you. I know you're gonna have thousands more fans watching. Some of us will be there. I'll be uh, I'll be one of the last tee times on Wednesday, and my my four year old son goes along with me, and I, I have him hit shots on like uh, every Oh, so that's very, awesome. It's very very entertaining. So if you're out there, definitely come come say hi. You've been a wonderful champ to do an interview with us. I know you're an introvert, and I know you got a big week ahead, but it's very, very kind of you to call in and do the interview. No problem. It was a, it was a pleasure. So uh, make sure and come say, come say hi on Wednesday. Well, two great brands, JJ, yes. Disney and the Masters. Yes. What an episode. A tradition like any other? Is that what it, is that what it is? Yeah. Like any other or like no other? Yeah. Yep. Both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, another great episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Next week, actually, we have Chris Zook, and he's written one of my favorite business books of the year. It's called The Founder's Mentality. It's another book by Bain and Company. Basically, the founder's mentality is the mentality that a founder, a true owner, brings to a company. And Chris argues in this book, if you lose the founder's mentality, you lose the company. You lose profitability. You lose morale, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the founder's mentality consists of three traits, an insurgent mission, an owner mindset, and an obsession with the front line. And I read this book, and it changed everything for me because I realized as we grew, we were losing the founder's mentality. So it's a great interview. I mean, really, one of the most practical grow your business interviews is going to be next week on the podcast. In fact, let me just play you a little clip of it now. Here's a piece of my interview with Chris Zook. You know, even your local restaurant that is 
dedicated to having, you know, the freshest food from the best farms and something special has its own insurgent mission. And over time, you know, businesses begin to lose that. They become just another bank, just another consulting firm, just another insurance company, just another law firm. And when that happens, you find, you know, one of the great predictions of how people feel is if you see a parking lot that's filled with a lot of cars pointing out, it means that when people get there in the morning, and this, is, this has been proven actually, people get there in the morning, the first thing they're thinking about is how to get home, not what they're going to do at work that day. And that emotional core is really is the soul of a business. And we found that was one of the three elements of the founder's mentality that was absolutely critical to internal health. All right. Well, you're not going to want to miss that. Like I said, one of the most practical grow your business interviews. JJ, yes. another episode in the can. Yes. We did it. And to celebrate, I have a little gift for you. Really? Yes. A very special gift. This is my Miss Piggy Hidden Mickey pin. Oh, heavenly days. <laughs> for I you. don't want it. It's for you. I know it's rude, but I don't want it. <laughs> Come on. Take it. <laughs> Here, I'll trade Just, you. No. I'll trade you. Here's a half empty bottle of water. No. No. <laughs> I worked hard for this hidden Mickey. You are going to take it. You know, there are creators and there are consumers in the world. JJ, <laughs> I'm a creator. Yes. I well, make this things should people inspire you. <laughs> Golly. Thanks again, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. All right, explain this to me. Where is the hidden Mickey in this thing? (laughs) 